Well, amen. Well, in his introduction to his commentary on the book of Galatians, John Calvin wrote the following. He said, in the fifth chapter, Paul exhorts the Galatians to hold fast the liberty obtained by the blood of Christ and not to let their consciences be ensnared by the opinions of men. But he reminds them at the same time, what is the legitimate limit of liberty? He then, in chapter 6, takes occasion to point out the true occupation of Christians, that they may not waste their time on ceremonies and neglect matters of real importance. That last sentence struck me that they may not or that they might not waste their time on ceremonies and neglect matters of real importance. I thought about that statement a lot on Thursday, and as a result, I began to ask myself several questions. Um, Having been set free by the blood of Christ, what are the matters of real importance in my life? Because of the blood of Christ and having been set free by his blood, what is it about who I am as a husband and as a father And as a pastor, that is really important. What is it about my relationships that is really important? What is it about my past that is really important? What is it about the future and my future that's really important? What is it about us and about who we are and what we do as a church that's really important? What is it about our past, the last 11 and a half months, that's really important? And as we look ahead in in two weeks and celebrate our year anniversary, as we look ahead, what is it about what's ahead that is really important? Another way to put it would be looking ahead. What do we need to make sure we don't neglect? Spiritually, relationally, personally, and corporately. And as I asked those questions and as I worked through them in my mind, the answer that kept coming back to me was this. How I've loved. How we've loved. How I will love and how we will love. It's not groundbreaking. It's not earth shattering. It's not really even new. It's not a novel idea or answer in any way. And it really just seems to make sense if we think about it. Because no matter what we've done, no matter what we're doing, no matter what lies ahead, if love hasn't been a part of it, it has been, is, or will be really a waste of time. Again, that's that's not a novel idea because really that was Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 13, I believe. He says, or said, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have a prophetic power and or have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to move mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. And if I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. 
And really, he says the same thing here in Galatians 5 and 6. I mean, he's been adamant about it, right? We've seen that. In chapter 5, he says, you've been set free by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't put yourself back in bondage to things like legalism and license, both of which are nothing more than a complete self-centered preoccupation with yourself, your own thoughts, your own desires, your own abilities, your own efforts, your own achievements. Rather, he says, because you are free, love God and love others. That's really the purpose of your freedom. Love and obey God. Love and serve others. And then as we saw last week, he said, but realize that is not going to be easy. And it's not going to be easy because there is this war going on inside of us between the flesh and the spirit back and forth Between our thoughts and our affections and our emotions that are focused inward onto ourself and those thoughts and those affections, those desires, those emotions that are focused outward toward God and other people. And that back and forth of the emotions and desires and affections creates an an, an outward example of that or it's exhibited outwardly in this tug of war between decisions and actions that are focused inward on ourselves and decisions and actions that are focused outward on God and other people. And as we saw last week, to cultivate that life in the spirit or life walking by the spirit, there were there were three things he focused on there. There's rest and there's striving and there's there's the need to remain humble. We said that if we were going to cultivate this type of life in the spirit, we must rest in the fact that we belong to Jesus Christ. It begins there, resting in Him and His work on our behalf. And then out of that rest, we strive. Right? We strive to walk by the Spirit. It's a life of action. And we said that there were a couple of things in particular that were, import, that were important about that. One is we need to, to avail ourselves of the means of grace. It begins there. But it doesn't end there. We, as we avail ourselves of the means of grace and then throughout our lives in the day to day, we spend time mortifying and putting our sin to death. And then, of course, in all things and in that, we must remain humble because insecurity and envy and pride and conceit, they all have that same root. And what happens is we take our eyes off the Lord Jesus and turn them on to ourselves And we determine that our right standing with God and with other people is dependent upon how others feel about us and accept us and treat us. And so we have to maintain a proper estimation of who we are. And we can only maintain a proper estimation of who we are by looking and keeping our eyes upon Christ. Because as our eyes are upon Christ, we are reminded that we're sinners in need of salvation, in need of grace. But at the same time, as we keep our eyes upon Christ, we're reminded, too, of who we are in Him. Co-heirs with Him. Brothers and sisters of Him. Sons and daughters of God. And so that that humility, that proper estimation, looking upon Christ, not, not having, allows us to not have too low or too high an opinion 
of ourselves. Well, this week in verses 1 to 10 in chapter 6, he gets really specific. For those of us that like to be told what to do, it's here. He gives us three things in particular that we are to do. He's already said that love is a characteristic of saving faith. He said that love is a channel through which we serve one another. He said that love uh, is fulfillment of the law. And he also says that love is a fruit of the spirit. And tonight he says, and this is what love looks like. This is how, this is how it's exhibited. We, we get to that imperative. We've already heard that indicative. We've heard the declaration of who we are. And it's only here that we, he started a little earlier. But here we get really specific with that imperative. Okay, now this is what we should do in light of who we are. And he gives commands. He, he doesn't just offer examples. They're not just suggestions. They're not just multiple choice options for us um, from which we can choose what we like and what we don't like. It's kind of a, all of the above if we were answering on a quiz. So as, as we come to chapter 6, before we jump in, let's... Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we want to thank you so very much for our time tonight. We thank you for where we've been in this marvelous letter. And we'd ask that you would continue to bless us as we conclude this week and next. And tonight I would ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of of how we are to now live in light of who we are in Christ. And that we might exhibit the love that you desire for us to exhibit. Grant us grace. And again, as always, may we see Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So there, within these ten verses, there are three commands regarding love. Paul says, first, we are to love the spiritually weak. Second, we are to love those who teach. And then finally, we are to love everyone, specifically one another. So that's that's the outline. Love the spiritual weak, love those who teach and love one another and our neighbor. Let's look first at the spiritually weak. We'll start in verse one. Paul says, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Well, Paul continues in this tone that he began in verse 13 of chapter 5 when he uses the term brothers. And it's rightly so because what he's about to tell them and what he's about to require of them is only possible through a brotherly affection as well as a compassion on the part of those who are being called to love. What they're being directed to do is not something that they would do in and of themselves or would be even able to do nor expected to do without the type of union and communion that is described by the term. So he says within the life of the church, there are going to be times when members experience periods of spiritual weakness. There are going to be times when members of churches, when believers find themselves overtaken by, overpowered by, or overcome by sin. And they're going to lose that battle with which we spoke of last week. They're going to lose that battle with the flesh. 
And they're going to give in to the temptations of the world around them. They're going to give in to the temptations of Satan. And they're going to, they're going to do what they don't want to do. And then there are going to be times where they're not going to do what they want to do. And it, it's not really, though it could be, a one-time moral failure of some kind. And if that was the case, this would all still apply. But the language that Paul writes with here seems to suggest that there's this ongoing, even habitual situation taking place. It's an ongoing thing uh, that they're entangled in, to use the language from Hebrews 12.1. They're entangled by it, they're struggling, and they can't get themselves out of the pattern from which they find themselves and it's been established despite the fact that they want to. And when that happens, Paul says, they need to be loved. They need to be loved. They need to be loved by those who are living by the Spirit. Those who are walking by the Spirit. Those who are exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. And they need to be loved, really, in kind of three ways. Or there's three ways of describing the love that he's talking about. They need to be loved closely, gently, and humbly. They need to be loved closely in terms of proximity and time. The word restore here means to mend, and it means to strengthen. And it was used in a couple of ways in in terms of mending nets, but also in terms of setting broken bones. So the idea here is that there's a restoration of use, as well as a straightening out that, that needs to take place on the part of one who's entangled in sin. And it involves our our coming alongside and loving them involves assisting that one who is under the crushing weight that they feel from uh, regarding their sin, regarding the guilt of their sin, regarding the consequences of their sin, regarding the collateral damage of their sin. They're, they're walking around. They may not look like it physically, but spiritually they're, they're hunched over and probably are emotionally hunched over from that enormous weight that's come from carrying that burden of sin. And Paul says the church is to come alongside. To bear that burden or to come alongside and carry that weight with them. They're to lighten that burden that is overwhelming and definitely outside of the normal load. Because we all carry a normal load of weakness and sin on a day-to-day basis. And what Paul is describing is well beyond that. The sin and weakness that we carry on a day-to-day basis would fit in a backpack. This... Sin and weakness that Paul describes as being carried by this individual is, is, would not fit, would be beyond what would fit in a backpack and is beyond what's normal. And they need to be loved closely, but they also need to be loved gently. Any of you who have ever seen a bone reset knows that it's a difficult, painful process. And so there's a gentleness that must take place. It must be delicate because of the the painful process that it is. Care must be taken in the midst of the initial pain as well as the ongoing discomfort that comes from making things straight. 
It's hard and difficult. And so we also, he says, we also, the love needs to be uh, humble. We need to love humbly. Paul says that those who come alongside others who are in sin can only do it if they understand their own sin. What does he mean? Well, we need to understand our own sin, our own struggle, and our own battle with the flesh. Because we must understand that there could be a role reversal at any moment. We don't want to come along someone who is burdened by, overly burdened by their sin and their guilt, thinking that we never have or will never have that issue. We need to have a sensitivity and we need to come alongside. We can't fool ourselves into thinking that the same thing couldn't happen to us. Augustine once said, there is no sin which any man has done, but another man may do the same. So we need to remember and understand our own pride as well as our own insecurity. We need to understand that pride can cause us to look down on those who have sinned. And we can then place upon them unrealistic and unhelpful demands. But we also don't need to be insecure because our insecurity would cause us to to not do what we need to do. It would cause us to step back from confronting and step back from carrying that load. So again, that proper estimation of who we are is necessary. Not too high of a view, not too low of a view, but having a right view of ourselves as we look to Christ. And it's as we maintain that right view that we become helpful and restorative. Brothers and sisters, this, again, is not a suggestion. It's it's a command and it's not simply an expectation Paul has of the Galatians. It's an expectation that God has for all of us. And we know that not only because of what Paul says here to the Galatians, but we see it throughout Scripture. Loving the spiritually weak is a responsibility of every Christian in every church. It's not easy and it's far more important than we often realize. Paul says it here in the book to the Galatians or the letter to the Galatians. He also says this to the church at Thessalonica. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Jude writes, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire to others. Show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And then James writes, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The imperative that we go and that we love by bearing that burden and we need to look, we we need to look or we need not look any farther than how we have been loved by Christ. For that motivation to spur us on to what it is we're to do. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, this commandment then of bearing one another's burdens belongs not to them who deny Christ. Neither does it belong to those who continue in their sins. On the contrary, it belongs to those who hear the word of God and believe and yet fall into sin. And after they are admonished, not only receive such admonition gladly, but also detest their sin and endeavor to amend 
These, I say, are they who are overtaken with sin and have the burdens that Paul commands us to bear. In this case, let us not be rigorous and merciless, but after the example of Christ who bears and forbears such, let us bear and forbear them also. For if he punish not such, which he might justly do, much less ought we so to do. In other words, we who have been loved well, in the midst of and really despite our own spiritual weakness. Who are we not to come alongside others? We're called to love in that same way we've been loved. Christ bore that ultimate burden of our sin. On our behalf on the cross. We were broken and, and beyond usefulness. And he set us straight. We've been mended. Our usefulness has been restored. Therefore, we should bear the burden of our brothers and sisters, that burden that they're carrying. And and let me let me add too: we are to also gently and humbly love those and closely love those who have been affected by the sin of others. We cannot forget those who have been who are carrying a burden That is too weighty to carry alone because of what someone else has done to them. And the consequences of someone else's sin that lays upon them. We too must come alongside them. And I am grateful. Grateful to say. That I have over the last four years. Seen this in action. I've seen many of you. Do what Paul is commanding us to do faithfully, tirelessly, selflessly, crying alongside others, praying for them, feeding them, listening to them. It's something I've seen you do, and I'm thankful for your faithfulness and your love and your consideration. And would pray that that would continue as those opportunities arise, as they will arise. Loving the spiritually weak. But Paul says not only are we to love the spiritually weak, we're also to love those who teach. He says in verse 6, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Paul says that those within the church have the responsibility to love those who teach them, who catechize them. And there's overwhelming agreement that Paul is referring to the pastor-teacher role within the local body who is responsible for the preaching and teaching and shepherding of the people. And he says that that love is to be expressed generously, purposefully, and cautiously. The commentators agree that the love that's expressed generously is through financial and material means that take care of all the necessities of life that the one who teaches might have. It's, it's to be, uh, we're to love purposefully, and, and that has really two facets to it. The first is that it's purposeful for the teacher, 
and that it allows through that provision, it allows the person teaching to prepare and to teach in, in the language of our PCA call forms. It's, it's so that we may teach free from worldly cares and avocations. But there's also a purpose on the part of those who give, not just those who receive it's purposeful in that those who give can and should reap spiritual, they should, should expect spiritual benefits because the teacher's concerns have been eliminated. They go hand in hand. One commentator expressed it this way, all good things almost certainly means financial support and it benefits both learner and teacher. Then he says this, in light of this, the word koinoneo becomes even richer. That word share. He says, for the salary of a Christian teacher is not to be seen as a payment. Rather, it is a sharing. It's a fellowship. Just as teachers share the spiritual gifts God has given them with the learner, so the learner shares the financial gifts God has given them with the teacher. And that leads us to why we're to love cautiously. We're to love cautiously. Paul wants them to realize that circumventing this sowing and reaping process that God has established is dangerous. And I need to interject here that what he's talking about has nothing to do with what you hear on Christian television. Completely different. Paul says that if you sow to your sinful nature, you will reap destruction. If you use and misuse what God has given you to meet the needs of others, to actually serve yourself or the flesh, will bring about negative consequences. And he says, however, if you sow to your spiritual nature, you will reap encouragement and growth. So if you take that which God has given you to provide for the needs of others... Or for spiritual things, there will be positive consequences as a result. And he also says, don't expect the dividends of that giving to be immediate. Right, we've talked all throughout this letter that sanctification, the process of sanctification is a, is a long, uh, tedious, labor-intensive process. To use an overly used metaphor, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Therefore, Paul says, hang in there. Don't give up. Keep, be a part of that fellowship. Because the long-term benefits will come about. He says, don't give up. Continue to love those who teach because just as in agricultural sowing, as it eventually produces crops that can be harvested, you too will reap spiritually. It will happen as you sow in love. And again, brothers and sisters, I would simply say at this point that just as you love the spiritually weak well, you love those who teach well. You love me, you love Wendy, it's, it's a privilege to be a part of this fellowship with you. Because you love us far more than financially. Words don't adequately express how much love we feel. And 
I've said this many times, we wouldn't want to be anywhere else. We wouldn't want to be serving anywhere else, serving alongside anybody else. And I was trying to think of how to, how to say this in the context to, to not make this about me and not even really to make it about you. But these words from Paul to the church at Thessalonica seem to be appropriate. Being affectionately desirous of you, we readily share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you have become very dear to us. We love and appreciate you all very much. And it's because of you looking to Christ. It's because of your, your sowing that you are reaping the spiritual benefits. You are seeing, hopefully you are seeing this play out day in and day out. So we love the spiritually weak. We love those who teach. And finally, he says we are to love one another and our neighbor. In verse 9, he says, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. But especially, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Paul says the bottom line is when the opportunities present themselves, go love. We have the responsibility to love everyone generously, indiscriminately. But then he adds this on the back end. He says, But especially, but especially those of the household of faith, but especially those within the church. And sometimes we read that and we think that's pretty uncomfortable. That that there's some somehow there's we're to love those inside more generously than those outside. And there might there's different levels. But we need to remember that we are to love each other exceedingly because of the union that we're in with one another and that we're in with the Lord Jesus. We're to love each other exceedingly because of the communion that we have, that we don't have with others outside of the faith, outside of the church. We, we share that union. We are in union with Christ. We are therefore in union with one another. And it's really our love for one another that identifies us and sets us apart in many ways. From the world around us. And I think that's why Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. People watch. They, they watch how you love each other. People are always watching. And they look at how you love each other, how people love you. And loving one another is a means by which we're salt and light to those around us. It's how we provide flavor. It's how we turn the light onto Christ. That he might be seen because our love for one another is fruit of the gospel. We could not do it. We would not do it apart from him. And it's him that we want others to. To see in, in the world around us, they're looking for true love. They're in desperate need of hope. And we have the opportunity. We have the answer. We're called to love closely and gently and humbly and generously and purposefully. And we can love in that way because Christ has loved us in that way. Christ has loved us 
generously. He's loved us closely. He's loved us gently and humbly and purposefully. He has, as I've already said, he has bore our burden of sin. We've been set straight and restored. We have been set free and we have, who have been set free are now free to go and love. Because as I said last week, we don't need anything from anybody because every one of our needs have been met in Christ. And so we now no longer need to use other people for our own selfish gain. We can go and love them without need of anything in return. May it be so by God's grace. Let's pray together.